and welcome to Always Take Notes. A message from our sponsor, Vitsu, Melvin's story. We love, love, love our Vitsu shelving. Build quality and ease of assembly is amazing, but it was your service that made the whole process such a joy. So said Melvin from Sydney in this heartfelt message to his Vitsu planner Sophie in London. Love is a word heard a lot at Vitsu. Other verbs just don't seem to cut it. As with any customer, Sophie considered every detail, so Melvin's bookshelves were perfect for his needs. Passionate about good service, she communicates with all her customers directly, wherever they are in the world. Whether in person or on the other side of the globe, Vitsu's planners hold your hand throughout the process, time and again proving that long-distance relationships really do work. Every interaction is handled with love from Vitsu. Vitsu's 606 Universal Shelving System is a modular adaptable kit of parts. It can provide the perfect home for your books and even the desk from which to write one. Visit vitsu.com, that's V-I-T-S-O-E.com, or request a free brochure via email at vitsu.com by quoting ATN 606. Vitsu, makers of long living furniture by Dieter Rams. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with the novelist Katie Kitamura. We spoke to Katie about her latest novel, Intimacies, which was chosen as one of Barack Obama's summer picks in 2021, her research process and the importance of choosing the right register for a story. It's a fantastic episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Katie, to Always Take Notes. Thank you so much for finding the time to chat to us. I wondered if we could start with Intimacies, in particular, its appearance on Barack Obama's summer reading list. What impact did that have for the reception of the book and its sales? I think it had a tremendous impact. I mean, I I didn't know what was going to happen. I found out the way I guess everybody else must have seen it, which is on his social media. And um, I had a complete, I really thought when I saw it that I I thought I'm finally, the delusions of grandeur have really hit me. And I'm just imagining this kind of Thing happening, but I think it, I think it, it it brought a lot of people to the book who maybe would not have otherwise come to the book. It certainly it happened the week before my U.S. publication, and it certainly took off some of the pre-publication uh, jitters or anxiety. So yeah, it was it was a wonderful thing. I, I felt I felt incredibly lucky. Um, it's been, as you know, a, a big a big year for fiction in 2021. A lot of books came out. A lot of really wonderful books came out and I I just feel very lucky that I I got that little bit of attention. Could we roll back now to your childhood and your initial interest in reading and writing? Is it right that you uh, read Agatha Christie novels at a great pace when you were a a young person? (laughs) I did. I mean, when I, you know, the books that you you read over and over again until the kind of spines are, are fully cracked and the books, the pages are falling out. It was those Agatha Christie novels as particularly as a kind of I think kind of nine, 10 year old, maybe that I I read almost obsessively. And it's interesting. I haven't thought about it very much until I really um, finished writing this book and and maybe also my last novel, which is called A Separation, which both have these kind of, they're not mysteries, but they borrow little elements from that genre. And then looking back, I realized how much that mystery narrative and format is really kind of hardwired into my DNA as a reader, I would say, even more than as a writer. Um, 
And I, I, th I think we're very much shaped by the books that we read as, as children, whether we, we like it or not, and for better or worse. And so, yeah, Agatha Christie was a, was a big thing in my, in my household. A separation and intimacies are both described, I've seen by critics, as thrillers that aren't thrillers. So I'm assuming that kind of sustained sense of dread or apprehension or something is something that you were sort of channeling or evoking deliberately. Yeah, I mean, I um, I always think of it as as a as, as kind of mysteries or, or or thrillers where the the resolution comes not from the outside world, not from necessarily the conclusion of plot or of a solution, but rather through a kind of more interior journey into the psyche of the character. Um, I, I think mysteries, obviously there's this incredible pleasure when everything slots in and the detective kind of says, aha, here is the, the answer. But for much of a, of a mystery, when you're reading it, you are in a state of dread and apprehension. And that's actually what propels you through the narrative. It, it's not actually the resolution, but it's actually the suspension of that resolution and the kind of um, layering and the twists and the diversions that actually pull you through a mystery. So I think that atmosphere of dread is something that um, certainly I, I, I try to achieve in my in my books. I think also the narrators are often seeking something. They're often, particularly in my most recent book, and intimacies, they're really, you know, the narrator is an interpreter and she's constantly looking to see what the narrative might be, coming up with hypotheses. And that's actually very much like what a detective does, albeit in a slightly quieter register, but that act of constant alertness, that constant interpretation, scanning for detail. I think all of that does come from, from genre, in fact. Could we fall back again to your, your kind of career as a student and so forth? I saw, um, again, another comment from your husband who said that you won't say this, but you were actually a kind of prodigy um, and that you, you went off to, to Princeton when you were 17. Like, how, how did this happen? Were you moved up ahead of your years or like, what was your, how did you, how did you get out of school so early? I, I was, I was, I, I think I skipped a couple of grades. And then when I was, so a university in, a, in, a, in the United States is, is four years rather than three. And for whatever reason, I think I was really in a hurry when I was a teenager. So I, I graduated, I was 19 when I, when I finished my university um, degree at Princeton. Um, and then I think the, the kind of act of my 20s were, were a kind of long process in relaxing and I think I've become very very good at it now and so I have a kind of sloth-like demeanor and I'm no longer kind of uh charging through as fast as I can but I, yeah I, I certainly I I had a very um I, I suppose you know the kind of stereotypical Asian immigrant family work ethic where you know anything less than a than an A which is the which is which is a kind of high mark in the in the US anything less than that was just it's not even considered failure it's just not it's inconceivable almost so that was that was something that I think um gave me a lot of discipline which is actually very useful for a writer I you have to keep sitting down even when things aren't working and you have to keep trying and you kind of have to keep banging your head against a wall until something happens um you know it's almost it's almost quite rote in a way it's almost physical it, to some extent, I think writing. Um, so that discipline was very useful on the one hand, but I think also, as I said, I feel like I spent a lot of my 20s moving away from that, learning to understand that there are periods when you're maybe not making anything, you're not doing anything, and those are still productive periods. 
what were you drawn to in your kind of short period at Princeton um, and in your postgraduate study? What were the kind of topics that you enjoyed reading about the most? I, I mean, I, I, I did a, a degree in English literature and I uh, focused primarily on Henry James, was, was I, I wrote part of my dissertation on. And um, yeah, that was a kind of magical period. I think I was very immersed in, it's, it's, it's even now I, I find it wonderful to be immersed in the work of one writer. And so that's always what I, I try to do when I read, I read narrow narrowly and deeply I think is how I would describe it but I you know right now I'm um I'm just starting to read the work of Yasushi Inoue this Japanese writer post-war writer and um I'm just trying to read everything that's available and I I really enjoy that I I like being able to see how a writer develops how a writer changes both I think over the the course of their career and becoming a writer but also in response to the kind of social and political situation around them. That to me is really fascinating. I think that instinct probably comes from my more academic background where when you decide to write about a writer, you read everything that's available. Just just that is the first step. Um, That's your kind of due diligence. And so I think that has continued to influence the way I read now as a a novelist. You know, if I I find a book that I enjoy, if I find a writer whose work speaks to me in some way, then I'll read everything that they published. Talking of your uh, academic career, could you tell us about the um, the aesthetics of vulgarity and the modern American novel? Yeah, that, that was my. I mean, it, it's a slightly terrifying thought. I, I wonder what was actually in that in that document that was submitted as my thesis. But it was it was looking at Henry James in particular, and also Nabokov, um, and then a, a number of more contemporary novelists, including. DeLillo and Brett Easton Ellis and I was primarily interested in thinking about how there were different kind of emergent forms of narrative that seemed always to threaten the kind of primacy of the novel in some way so if you look at Henry James the Bostonians there's a lot of anxiety about newspaper culture in particular and the kind of circulation of newsprint um, in Lolita cinema was obviously both a great love but also kind of great threat to the high aesthetics of the novel um, in Don DeLillo's um, white noise, the kind of culture of branding, the kind of repetition of brand names, the way that infiltrates the world of the, the high academic world of that central character. Um, so it was, it was really the kind of idea of the novel as a form that always seemed to perceive itself as under threat. And I think that continues today. I know that every time you talk to a novelist, there's always this anxiety about fewer and fewer people are reading novels, attention spans are changing, but in fact, the novel has persisted as a form for a remarkably long time and actually not changed terribly much, I don't think. I mean, it's changed in terms of its content, but in the basic, you know, it's still pages in a book, the technology of the book, you know, whether it's online or, or, or in your hand has not changed that much, I don't think. What were your first steps once you left studying behind? I was actually just talking about that with a friend of mine earlier. You know, I wrote my first novel um, in the morning, kind of between six and eight before I went to do my kind of, you know, went to the library and did my academic work. And that was one of my happiest periods as a writer, I think because it felt incredibly free the stakes felt very very low because I wasn't even thinking about publishing that or trying to publish that it was just 
something that was really for myself and it felt very very private and it was not you know I didn't have all day to write I had those kind of two or three hours and those were really special hours and I remember writing I remember writing my early fiction the experience of it very clearly and you know I it, it's strange I, I can't really remember the feeling of writing either of my last two books there was just a lot more that was happening alongside it both in writing terms and in, in life terms I think and is it right that your your first book was not a novel, but this this title Japanese for Travelers? So how did how did that come about, and what kind of what kind of book was that? It was a kind of travelogue, and it was the first first piece of yes, it was the first kind of book that I published. It was the first extended piece of non academic writing that I did, um, and I think I suppose one of the things I realized is that nonfiction is, is a more actually a more difficult form for me and that persists today when people ask me to write reviews or they ask me to write an essay, I always find that slightly difficult in some ways. Um, and I think it was possibly in response to that that I started to write fiction. Um, initially, I think what I I enjoyed about fiction was this sense of not writing about myself and the sense that through fiction, I could write into different worlds and write different characters and different people I mean of course the thing you learn along the right fiction is that everything is in fact about yourself or some dimension or some aspect of yourself and that is I think one of the things that has been most useful for me as a writer was to realize that fiction is an act of exposure and, and that you are revealing yourself all the time um, so that was something that I think you know initially the the that very first book was written in first person and that was something that I found quite difficult then I wrote a lot of fiction that was in third person. And then more recently, I've gravitated back to the first person um, and found it a very productive register for fiction writing. Was that first book or the, the work that you were producing between 6 and 8 a.m., was that what became The Long Shot? Yes, it is. What was the process then of taking that work that was private and, as you say, kind of low stakes for yourself only, and then saying, yes, I am going to submit it to an agent, publisher, etc.? That I mean, that was a that was a hard process. I I think. I mean, I wrote that book really by myself in a lot of ways. I think the longer you're writing, the more you have other readers around you. Eventually, you have an agent and an editor who give you feedback. But that was really an instance of me writing and editing and editing as as, as much as I could until I thought I had something that was worth a shot and and I, I kind of thought we'll see and I thought you know I've written it between six and eight so if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out um I mean ultimately I think the novel that was published was actually very close to what I submitted to Asians because I think I had worked on it so much on my own um I mean I now teach on an MFA program at New York University and it's it's really interesting to teach on that program because I myself don't have a, a creative writing degree and I, I didn't do an MFA. And I think that way of working is so different to how I naturally work. So I will naturally work in a very private way. I won't share my work really with anybody. I, I eventually will share it with my husband when I have a complete draft, um, but really only until I have a complete draft. But in the case of somebody who's doing an MFA, you're naturally sharing work in progress all the time and you're opening up that work to input to revision much much earlier on in the process than I do and so that's I think means that you have a set of readers who can give you input you don't feel like you're kind of just setting it out like a moonshot but to me with that first book it felt like I was sending it out 
on a moonshot. And, and, you know, I, I was, I was very lucky. There was a, I had a, a young agent who subsequently stopped working and publishing, but she did agent that first book. And she, I, I think was young and was, and was looking for, for, for young writers. And, and yeah, I lucked up. That's the only way I can think of it. And we really love on the show to, to kind of get into the mechanics of this because our, our listeners really, really like it. But so when, with that first text, did you just submit it blind to agents? And then how was there, how many publishers were interested? Was there, was it auctioned or was it just a, a single one? I sent it blind to a couple of people. I think in the case of the agent who represented it, I had a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend type of recommendation, which I think naturally pushed it up to I mean, I actually don't know exactly how. I don't probably you know more than I do about about the the process of of within an agency. I I I assume it's an assistant who reads the work that comes in on a blind submission, unless there's a recommendation that comes through in it. Um, so that was that was a process with that. In 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 terms of the publication, I think there were three three publishers in the U.S. who were interested who made offers on it. Um, and 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 I went with um, an imprint called Free Press, which is part of Simon Schuster, which actually subsequently has shut down. Um, but I had a wonderful editor there, and I had a I felt like I had a lot of support throughout the uh, the publishing house. So not only from the editor, but also you know I, I spoke to the publishing director and a couple of other people, and I think that that sense that you have a team that's pulling for you is 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 really useful and reassuring. I think especially for a first time writer. Definitely. Um, what was the process then like with your second novel, Gone to the Forest, in 2013? Presumably you didn't have to write it between the hours of six and eight, but in terms of how you plotted it, how you wrote it, how did you find the whole you know, process of putting it together? I mean, I, I think it's... Um, with the first novel, I, I really felt like I was trying to work out if I could write fiction at all, and it has a very tightly circumscribed timeline it takes place really only over three days and there are essentially only two characters it's a two-hander um and I think with the second novel it was I wanted to see if I could do something bigger so it's it's still quite a short book and all my books are very short um but it was something where I wanted to see if I could work on a bigger canvas if I could work on a bigger scale and so that was exhilarating and somewhat frightening in a way but it was it was a it was a really um, it was exciting to move away from what I had done in the past. And I think even now that's always what I'm trying to do. I, I think for me as a writer, if I know how to do something, then that feels immediately a little bit less interesting. Um, there are aspects of my most recent book that are similar to the book that I wrote before that, but there are other things that I really wanted to be very different and I wanted to see if I could push myself as a writer. I, you know, I, I think you can feel when you know how to do something, you can feel yourself just kind of, you know, it's a little bit like getting dressed in the dark. And I think that obviously that makes for a less interesting writing experience. But I also think for a reader, I, I feel like I know when a writer knows they can do something and I'd rather see a novel fail in an interesting way than succeed in a less interesting Way. So, so the process of writing that book was really just trying to see if I could do more and, and trying to, to see the kind of breadth um, of, of the canvas that I could occupy. And then for that book in kind of um, professional terms, I then had to find a new agent. And so that was 
the kind of process of submitting again. And then I, I um, it was a little bit easier because I had already published a novel. And then I ended up working with a wonderful agent who's, who's still my agent today um, called Ellen Levine in the United States. And she's been a, a really great champion of my work. And so that, that's, been, that's been a wonderful relationship. How did you go about choosing her as your, your agent when you had to go through this process for a second time? What, what made you decide that that was a, a good creative relationship to follow? I mean, Ellen has an incredible list. And I always tell when I'm speaking to my students or to, to, to writers who are looking for an agent that I, I do think it's just taste, right? The person, an agent saying yes, that's really just taste. It's not a kind of marker of whether or not your book is good or bad, it's simply that they connected with that book. And I think in order to find the person who connects with your work, you have to find the person who has tastes that's similar to yours. So I, I love her list. She has writers that I admire enormously. She represents you know, Marlon James, Michael Andache, Marilyn Robinson. She, she has an incredible list. And, and not only an incredible list of, of very uh, significant and, and and wonderful writers, but also writers that have meant a lot to me. So I, I, I felt that she would be a good fit on the basis of that. She's also an incredibly fast and responsive reader. Um, and and I've, I've now put her in touch with some of my former students and some of my friends as well. Um, she, she will read a manuscript over the weekend. And that's actually quite rare. I think people tend to take on the shorter end a couple of weeks, but she's somebody who who will respond to you very, very quickly. She'll drop everything to read your book. Um, and and that's, very, that's very reassuring. I know for a lot of people, the, the kind of dead space between submitting your work to your agent or your editor and then hearing back is kind of almost one of the most agonizing parts of writing. She really shortens that for you. And if she's gonna take longer, she'll tell you the reasons why. Um, so she's, she's just a very present and wonderful person. And can we talk a little bit about your research process? I read that your brother introduced you to the world of mixed martial arts for the long shot. Um, but Gone to the Forest is set in an unnamed colonial country. How did you go about collecting the material that you needed to be able to create that world sort of uh, effectively? Way of creating that world, which was deliberately a kind of amalgam of different um, sources and inspirations. And it was meant to kind of be a kind of uh, cobbled together world in some way. And so a lot of that was just looking at pre-existing texts that were set in that world. And so I didn't have to do the kind, I mean, I did I did in the end read quite a lot of nonfiction for that, but it wasn't the kind of absolute in the case of intimacies and in the case of the long shot, there was research where, um, you know, it, it was a very, it's very specifically placed both in time and in, in, in the kind of geographical location. So in, in the case of both of those books, I did, a, you know, I, I went to those places, I interviewed people, you know, there were lots of details that I felt I had to get exactly right. I think with Gone to the Forest, it was a slightly more imaginative process in a way um, where I was reading a lot of, um, you know, Naipaul was important to me for that book, Gordon or Kurtzier. I was reading a lot of those kinds of books and, and pulling those influences together. So I think it was a novel where it felt like the research was an influence to some extent. I think it was um, different for the rest of the books. And with your next novel, A Separation, how did your own experiences in Greece find their way into that narrative? Yeah, I, I, um, I was in Greece. I was working on a, a documentary film. So we were actually in the village where that novel is set for, I think, a week or two. It, 
felt like quite a long time. And that was in 20, I, it, it was quite a long time ago. I actually can't remember the exact year, but I remember being completely struck by the landscape and, and having, you know, it, which had such a vibration to it. It's, it's, a, it's a, the novel is set in Mani, which is the southernmost tip of the mainland of Greece. And it's, it's a really kind of sublime in the real sense of the word landscape. And I remember sitting, standing there and, and, and really feeling like I was waiting for a character to kind of step into that landscape and animate it. And I kind of put that away for a couple of years. And then eventually that character came to me and then that was really the starting point for the novel, but it was, it was, I have a, I think quite a slow gestation period. I often will have the idea for a novel and then it's, you know, that I'll look back and the, there's almost a 10 year gap between the first inkling of the novel and the publication date. Certainly with intimacies, I think my first inkling of that novel was, was about 10 years ago. And I just, I think it's the idea that haunts you, the idea that doesn't go away, that you keep returning to, that your mind keeps worrying over even subconsciously. Um, is the idea that will have enough depth to sustain you for the several years that it takes to write a novel. Was that quite unusual with the separation that the landscape or the setting is what sort of compelled you? Uh, I read elsewhere in an interview with you that voice is really what the switch that once that's once you've got the voice in your head, that's when you can really start writing. Yeah, I, I think with the separation, I hadn't interesting experience the landscape was definitely the starting point for that novel and then in the atmosphere it produces a very precise atmosphere and I actually wrote a draft of that novel in the third person and it really wasn't working it didn't have any of the ambiguity or indeterminacy that I thought I wanted um, and I shelved it and I didn't look at it for a few years in fact I never looked at it again I don't know where it is um, but then I returned to the project a few years later and I started writing in the first person and that was the first time I wrote in first person for fiction and I always had a slight nervousness about first person and earlier you know I was uneasy with the kind of authority that it seemed to have I, I that kind of sense of uh, a, a character controlling this story was in some way uncomfortable or, or different to the kind of concerns that I had as a fiction writer. But I think at some point I realized that I could really use first person to experience, uh, to express uncertainty and indeterminacy. And I, and I found this register for a voice that is kind of constantly moving in circles around a particular event or a particular object. Um, and once I had that, I felt like I, I'd unlock something um, about the characters and, and about the story as well. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the novelist Katie Kitamura. You're about to hear the next instalment of a new segment we're trying out on the podcast. In this segment, you'll hear previous guests of the show answer one of three questions. What's a piece of advice you wish you'd had at the start of your career? When is a time you failed? And what's the most important trait someone in your profession can have? Their answers weren't included in the main interviews that Simon and Rachel did with them, so hopefully they give you some fresh insight into the careers of some of the fascinating guests that we've had on. So, without further ado, here's the magazine writer, Oliver Franklin Wallace, with some advice for a journalist at the start of their career. i tell you what, the, the best advice I did get 
at the start of my career was from Andy Morris, who was my editor at GQ, and he was just relentless about the importance of preparation for big interviews. He would make sure that if I was interviewing a celebrity, I'd, as close as possible, read everything that every interview they'd ever given. Uh, go back deep into the archive. Don't just read the things that they've said recently, uh, but go back as far as you can. Um, and if you show that research to people, like if you can, if you can indicate the level of research and how seriously you're taking it. Um, in your questions, then people tend to be flattered by that. People tend to, particularly people who give a lot of interviews, people tend to, in my experience, say, okay, let's take this a bit more seriously. This person's interested in going into depth. The second thing I would say, which is, I find it helpful as a reporter to kind of set the expectations with the people that I'm interviewing, give them an idea of the way that I want them to answer questions. You know, if you're reconstructing a scene, then a great thing to do is say, look, if we're going to reconstruct the scene, I need you to be as visual as possible. You know, what were you wearing? What we, what did the room look like? How big was it? Sometimes questions that, on first glance, might seem a bit random, seem, might seem a bit twenty questions. Um, you know, earliest memories or deepest fears. Those kind of things give you more of a personality than if you're just kind of talking about the subject of a specific story in granular detail that you know a newspaper would do. But if you're interested in, you know, long form nonfiction, or if you're interested in writing books, then you want to go into that level of depth that they might not otherwise. Um, so I hope that's helpful. That was Oliver Franklin Wallace. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Katie Kitamura. Is it right that there's been uh, film interest in a separation? And, and how, if so, how is that moving forward? And what level of involvement do you have? And are you interested in having an adaptation of your work? Yeah, I um there there is and it has been option and it went quite a ways down the road and then the pandemic happened and things unfortunately did fall apart and I don't know exactly where we stand with it now but I I was I did write the script and it was um it was a fantastic experience. I think writing is so it's something that you do very much alone and script writing is inherently collaborative and that's really was a wonderful experience. I, I, I suppose I thought early on that I wouldn't necessarily want to revisit material that I'd already worked with and a lot of my friends who are novelists who don't want to write their scripts, that's their reason for not doing it, is that they kind of feel like they're finished with the material and they don't want to revisit it. But for me, the experience of, of of screenwriting is is actually wonderful. I feel like I'm learning all the time. I feel like it feeds back into my novel writing as well. You know, I think to talk to an actor about a character as a novelist, you learn a lot about the way they think about bringing a character to life on screen is a little bit different than the way you might think about bringing a character to life on the page, but they can inform each other in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I, I found it enormously helpful and I enjoy the kind of collaborative element of it. It's interesting given your character in that book is an interpreter. How did you find sort of transmuting between those two mediums? Was there anything that you found difficult in terms of the interiority of, of the novel that was a bit more harder to externalise into a plot on the screen? It, for sure. I think that's really the great challenge of adapting that particular book and and um I, I mean I imagine it will be the case with this new book as, as well um and I think one thing that was very interesting to me is is that I would have you know that 
I would have actors saying to me, like, I can't just do that without any line of dialogue or without an action or you have to actually give me something to work with. And that's, that, that's, that's, um, that was a lot of actually very interesting to think, how do you take something that's like a three page internal monologue and how do you find the action or how do you find the single line of dialogue or how do you find the organization of people in space? How, how do you find a way of expressing that in a different way? And again, I found that, you know, rather than a frustration, I found that incredibly stimulating and it's something that I think feeds back into writing fiction is that you, you kind of think oh here's another kind of toolkit here's another thing I could do to try to um, communicate something about the character what the character's feeling um, the kind of tension in a scene and that's that's always um, really useful I think one of the most useful things that I've thought about in terms of scene building is um, a friend of mine was working with Declan Donlan the theater director and I think he was describing how a scene happens in the space between the physical space between characters. Um, and, and that's something that I always kind of hear that when I'm writing a scene, I'm always trying to figure out how, you know, how far away are the characters from each other, how are they positioned to each other? What is the story that's being told in that way? With Intimacies, this new novel of yours that's had such an amazing reception, I was fascinated myself about using this court in The Hague as a, as a setting. It resonated with me because I used to work in West Africa as a journalist. So I was in Cote d'Ivoire when the whole Bagbo thing happened. But also I remember being in Sierra Leone when the Taylor verdict was, was announced. And I remember being sent out to do a story about it. And it was it was kind of a non-event, right? Like it didn't it didn't register with with local people. And and I always wondered with these things, it seemed that they they were in many ways very admirable institutions, but that they seemed almost to exist for for an external audience rather than a you know an, an indigenous or a, or a local audience in the areas where it had happened. Was that something that that you kind of found yourself, particularly when you were doing this immersive immersive research? I was interested that you you don't you you looked at the Bagbo case, but it's not it's not named as Bagbo right in in the book, and and the co- the, the court is not named as the ICC and stuff like that right yeah it, 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 it's I think for anybody who's familiar with the material it, it is quite clearly the bug book case I mean there are a couple of number I mean there are a number of reasons for that I think one is I was there are invented scenes with him I mean that as far as I know Lohan Bagbo didn't have that relationship with an interpreter and that was just something I although I know there are a lot of fiction writers who do do that that was something I wasn't comfortable doing um, I also didn't think that was necessarily my story to tell or to claim ownership over. I wasn't comfortable with that either. Um, but I, at the same time, you know, I, I think in a, in a fictional situation like that, you there there seem to be kind of two options. One is that you invent a, a figure and out of whole cloth, and I think there are dangers to that. I think it's getting it wrong is the stakes are quite high to me, you know, to falling into cliche, stereotype, all of those things was something I really wanted to avoid. Um, And then for all the reasons I just said, I I didn't want to actually name it and say, this is a a novel about Cote d'Ivoire and about Lohan Bagbo. So, you know, I stuck as close as I possibly could to the record. You know, the ICC makes all of its transcripts publicly available. You can just download them from their website. So I had a lot of resources. I tried to make everything as close as possible to what happened. Um, and I try not to claim ownership of a story that I didn't think was mine to tell. I think, you know, what you say about the orientation of the court is a really interesting one and something that I, I definitely found myself thinking about a great deal. Um, I didn't start out writing the book. 
you know, it, it's, it's not meant to be a kind of um, indictment of the international criminal justice system by any means. I think I did want to think about it as an institution and to think about how it functions as an institution um, logistically and the limitations that that might bring. And the question of who, you know, who is this, the theater, the court, who is it being performed to? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, it is, as you, as you know, there are many uh, countries who have not signed the Rome Statute and who don't fall within the jurisdiction of the ICC. And so therefore there is, you know, uh, primarily it has been leaders in African countries who have been um, tried in that court. And I think one thing that I realized while I was doing the research is that I think, you know, we often talk about systemic racism where we talk about kind of racism within an institution. I, I think that is not simply a question of goodwill within the institution or change of personnel. You know, in the, in the case of the ICC, that really has to do with the other institutions that they are necessarily working in tandem with and the limitations that that brings, you know, I, I, I think, so that was, that was, those are some of the things that I think I, I ended up thinking about as I, the further I did my, my research. You mentioned earlier that you had the idea sort of percolating for about 10 years before you decided to start writing. When did you actually start in earnest? And at what point did you interview the interpreters that actually work at the court and how did that reshape your ideas about the book? Um, I started writing it in earnest, I think in 2016, and then I had a baby in 2016. <laughs> so there was a little bit of a pause and I came back to the novel, but I interviewed the, I, I, did, a, I did a research trip to The Hague and I interviewed the interpreters um, during that, that week. And I, I sat in on the trial of Bagbo I always describe myself as something of a reluctant researcher. And I think every time I enter into a research phase, I'm always hoping that my assumptions will be confirmed. But actually, I think what's much more useful um, as a fiction writer is, is, is how your assumptions can be overturned. And research is actually not simply a process of confirmation, but it's really a process that's generative. And so there was a lot that I learned from talking to those um, interviewers, you know, I think when I started thinking about the novel, I I thought of the interpreter as almost a figure that receded and a figure that was whose job it was was to some extent to be permeable, invisible within the greater process of of, of the court. Um, in fact, after I interviewed these these interpreters, I realized that they're incredibly charismatic and that they're performers, that they're people who are really able to channel voices, they're able to add meaning i think to to what is being said because they have to so like if something is being said ironically they need to be able to communicate irony in their voice not simply because they say in a matter of fact way what has been said and that is a miscommunication it's a misinterpretation and so realizing the complexity of what they were called upon to do realizing how kind of physically exhausting it is to be doing that kind of for hours and hours delivering that kind of performance was was really enlightening um, and I think I also understood the moral complexity of what they were doing, which again was something that I intuitively thought must be there, but didn't know for certain. And when I spoke to them, I realized that absolutely it is there and that it is, it has a toll on them psychologically. It's, 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 it's tremendously um, tiring to be sustaining that ambiguity and uncertainty for so long. 
So a question that we always ask novelists on the show is how they go about constructing narrative, whether they are, to use the two terms we've often heard, a plotter or a plunger. So whether they're someone who has worked out the entire shape of the narrative in some form, be it an outline or, or post-it notes on the wall or a whiteboard before they get going, or whether they dive in and, and follow their subconscious, really. And we've heard both extremes and all sorts of, of areas down the middle. With yourself, um, how... What, what is your process and how has that evolved as your career has developed? I mean, I, I think I'm a plotter more and I tend to have an outline when I start, but I think that's more to do with the psychology of writing the novel and less to do with the actual process, if that makes sense. I, I find it reassuring to have an outline. I think for me, the process of, of being a plunger <laughs> Um, and, and heading into a two or three year project, not knowing where it's going to go is, is something that's not sustainable for me. I think I often say to people that the hardest part of writing a novel is, is working in faith for several years um, without knowing whether or not it's going to work out. I think an outline helps kind of obey that terror a little bit. Um, with intimacies, I had an outline from the beginning, but I think also because I consciously with this novel wanted to open up my writing process a little bit and try to work in a looser way. Um, I let myself move away from it much more and I let myself follow my impulses and my intuition. There was a lot of material that ended up getting cut. There was a character in particular that um, I feel like I kind of just fell in love with and I wrote chapters and chapters about this character. And then when I, when I gave the complete manuscript to my husband, who's also a novelist, he read it and he said, you know, you've let this character run away with the book and you just have to cut all of that. And so that's one of those moments where you think, oh, there's six months that has, has slightly gone down the drain. But I um, ultimately enjoyed working in this slightly looser way and, and letting myself kind of follow my pleasure as a writer um, and then learning to rein it back in and to cut things when they needed to be cut. So I think probably this novel I cut more than I've ever cut from a book. Could that cut character form the basis of, of their own novel? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I also think that for me, you know, people often say, how do you know a novel is a novel? You know, when do you know you have a novel? And for me, it's always when I, I can't wait to get back into that world where when I wake up and I kind of go to sit down at my computer, there's a real excitement about wanting to be back inside the world of the book. And to me, that's when I know I've got a novel rather than something that will maybe peter out a little bit. And I, I love being in the world of that character, for sure. The other um, perennial question that we always ask on the show is about money and how it's interfaced with people's writing lives. So be as candid or as, as guarded as you're comfortable with. But through your, um, you know, through your career, how have, how have you made it work? And, and particularly now, how does it work having a, a university position alongside your... Um, your writing and, and and so forth. As I say, like, you know, we, we don't want to put you in a difficult position here, but it's something that, that listeners are, are fascinated by. So, you know, if you could tell us a bit about that, that would be brilliant. Of course. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say, is there is no NHS in the United States. And so health insurance is an enormous cost for everybody in this country. And freelance health insurance is enormously expensive, um, particularly once we had a family, the cost of health insurance would be possibly second only to our rent. It was just an enormous outlay. And at that point, um, I, I knew I had to get a, a, a teaching job because there, it, was it was impossible to be, you know, I'd have to be paid enormous sums of money in order to, to afford kind of private um, freelance individual health insurance. Um, 
So I would say half of my income comes from my teaching and the other half comes from writing when I when I, I've just done my taxes conveniently. So I can say that with some degree of of certainty. And that writing takes a lot of different forms. Um, there's the novel writing, there's foreign rights, there's screenwriting, some bits of journalism. I, I do less journalism than some some writers. I don't do that much of it. Um, you know, my husband has a regular column in Harper's magazine in the US, and he also writes regularly for the New York Review of Books. So that that's that's kind of a, a big part of his workload. But for me, it's primarily um, screenwriting and, and fiction and small bits of other commissions. I mean, I will say it's it, sometimes you, you luck out. I think it's possible that I there are instances where I've been paid more for film rights than I've been paid for the book itself or the publishing rights to the book. Um, but that's obviously not something you can count on. And I think that and all the sizes of advances in general, I think, at least in the US, feel to me like they really rely on how many people are, are bidding on a book. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, there's, it, it's, a, it's a kind of, I, I don't know exactly how, I, I think there's been, there was a trend fairly recently where people were sharing their advanced sizes and they were, it was kind of mind boggling the, kind of, the amount that some people were being paid versus the amount that other people were being paid. I don't know if that, I don't know if that particular hashtag reached the reached the UK, but in the US, a lot of writers were just, you know, hashtagging. And, and, and I, I think, I can't remember what the exact, it was publishing paid me or something. But I think the statistic that was kind of boggling was that Jasmine Ward, after she won the National Book Award, was paid, I think, only very slightly more for her next book, which again won the National Book Award. And that was many, 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 it was a fraction of what other debut novelists were being paid, for example. Um, so it, it feels like quite, it feels like a little bit of a lottery. I, I think publishing in general feels like whether or not a book is successful, it feels to me like a crapshoot. It feels very hard to me to predict. Do you think the American publishing industry in general is more transparent about that sort of thing? I guess it's hard for you to say whether it's more transparent than, than the British publishing industry because you have more experience with the American one. But certainly here it feels like people are very unwilling to discuss money. I think people <laughs> I, I think people are possibly more reluctant to discuss money in the UK than in America, but I think they're quite reluctant to discuss money in, in the US as well. But I do, I mean, I've started to feel like it's almost there's a certainly within a, a close-knit group of friends, I think it's very useful to be quite upfront about how much you're getting paid because that helps people negotiate. And I certainly have had friends who have said, I want to be paid more because I know you paid X, Y sum of money, for example. Um, and, and I think that feels, I mean, it's interesting to me that feels quite bold, but in a way that's just logical asking what you're, you know, what, what you should be getting. Um, so I think, I, I think it's friendly and, and supportive to share those figures with your friends when, when they are discussing the process of negotiating their contracts, for sure. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's this kind of slightly arcane Publishers Weekly um, in the U.S. When they announce a deal, they have this kind of terminology like nice, good. Yeah. And it's all it's all very everyone knows exactly what it means. Right. It's like, yeah. 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 yeah so, I mean, I, I feel like to some extent that information is already out there. I don't know if there's an equivalent in the U.K. 
where they kind of give the code it's almost like a you know like a code for what the person has been paid i think it's more slightly more guarded here um just moving moving on a bit from from the gritty financials i was wondering uh, if you could tell us a bit about your creative relationship with your husband how you you alluded to that beforehand a bit of tell us a bit more about how that kind of partnership works and i suppose just thinking about it bluntly like what is the the potential pitfalls of that kind of thing as well i mean it seems that there would be a you know capacity you've had this huge success is that you know is there a possibility for envy and and vice versa like how do you how do you make sure that that works as a way that supports both your work and and avoid the the potential minefields i suppose in in that kind of creative relationship yeah i mean i I, people often ask me about um what it's like to live with another writer but i think nobody has asked me specifically to identify the pitfalls so i've gotten away with just kind of mentioning the positives and and there are so many you know so many positives i i, I make hari read literally everything i mean i think it drives him crazy i'll say like if i have to recommend a book for some publication and i've written a paragraph i make him read the paragraph before it goes there's a real kind of element of quality control that that, that he has to do um i i we're very different writers, which I think is really useful. I think our projects are so different. Um, and there are so many things that he's able to do as a writer that I'm not able to do. He's a, he is a maximalist, I think, to some extent. He writes big, multi-stranded novels, multiple voices. There are incredible, technically difficult things that he does in his work. Um, and I work in a much more condensed, compressed, kind of small-scale way. Um, in terms of professional jealousy, I don't feel that that's a risk at the moment. I, I mean, I, I certainly have other friends who are, who are, you know, they're both writers, and I think that has been a big issue. And if the discrepancy becomes very significant, which in some of these cases it is, I think that is certainly very difficult. Um, but I think we all know that it is slightly haphazard. What what manages to break through and what doesn't manage to break through um, and is not always connected. I mean, it's generally, I would say, not connected to the quality of the work. I think there's so much luck involved. I think it's, it's, there's many, many different moving parts. I think that's something that we both know. So if, if a book we write gets a good reception, we know we've been very lucky. If a book we write doesn't get the biggest reception, we know we've been unlucky, but I think it doesn't impinge in our sense of actual inherent quality of of what we're we're writing, um, I, d- does that answer your question in a in a fair way? <laughs> I'd say so. <laughs> yeah, very much, very very much so. Um, we are coming up against our time limit, but a final question from me: Am I right in thinking that you're already working on another novel, and it's a sort of trilogy with these with your two previous books about work and language? Could you tell us a little bit about how how you've conceived of that project so far? Yeah, I, I, it is. It's a, it's a kind of. I, I mean, I'm part of the way through it, and then, I, and and then I, and then I think it will kind of be a kind of conclusion, probably to this particular voice that I've been working with, and I'll probably try to find a different register to work in. So it'll have a very similar narrative voice. It will be the same first person um, tone. It is about a performer. I'm not exactly sure what register performs it'll be. I mean, it'll either be it'll be acting of some kind. I don't know if the person will actually be an actor or will have a slightly more peripheral function within that world. But again, it'll be a character who's speaking the words of other people and it'll be trying to 
kind of access the core of what's happening with that character through um, the different layers that emerge, I think, when you between what you mean and, and what you are able actually to say. And it'll be a novel that's very much concerned with performance and playing different parts, um, both on stage and, and off stage as well. A final quick question for me. This is just back on, on your research process, actually, which I was fascinated by earlier. Another thing that comes up often when we talk to novelists is at what stage they do their research. And so this this came up, for example, in the context of, of Ian Rankin, the, the British thriller writer, who said that he, early in his career, did loads and loads of research um, and then realized he'd sort of spent six weeks researching a, a blood test that ended up on the cutting room floor, right? That, that you know, And he shifted to thinking it was important to, to get a draft down early and then you know where you need to research it. By contrast, when we had Tracy Chevalier on the show, she said, look, in the way that I'm working in the historical media, like I've got nothing, you know, I don't know what shoes they're wearing. Like, I don't know how you open a door. So I've got to do the research first. With you, where where in your process does research come? I, I think it's it's when I've kind of opened the door of a book and I've stepped inside and I've looked around a little bit. So not terribly late, but not before. I don't think the idea for a novel thus far hasn't come out strictly from a research process. I haven't been engaged in some kind of, research and thought oh, that would make a great novel and, and then and then gone further um I absolutely I, I do think you can fall into a research rabbit hole and you can just spend all of your writing time doing research because it is fascinating so I, I think there's definitely something to be said for knowing what you're looking for I think the sweet spot for me is when I know what I'm looking for but it's early enough that I can change direction or pivot if that's what the research is telling me to do I also I also think research can solve problems for you. If you don't know what is happening with a character, if you don't know what's happening in the world, I find that going and doing some research actually often provides an answer. You know, it can, it can help you with plot, it can help you with character. Um, so it's also, so in that sense, I don't think I could write a full draft without doing research, but I think I'd like to be, you know, a little bit of the way in so I know what I'm looking for. I think there's also practicalities though. I think there's a lot of research that can be done online, which is a kind of miracle for novel writers. And I think probably has radically changed how people write. Um, but there's some research, I still like to go to a place if I'm going to write about it. And there's just practicalities of when you can fit that into your schedule. And I, you know, I, I would never not write, I would never stop writing because I couldn't get to The Hague for another six months. I would just blunder on and then I'd have to go back and, and correct it. Um, Brilliant. Well, look, we're, we're bang up against our time limit, but thank you for being a fantastic guest on Always Take Notes and wishing you all the best with the next novel and with all your projects going forward. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a complete delight. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Katie Kitamura. She's on Twitter at Katie Kitamura. Her website is katiekitamura.com and her latest novel, Intimacies, is published by Jonathan Cape in the UK. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. 
Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Katie? I particularly enjoyed, and I feel like I say this about a lot of novelists, but I particularly enjoyed hearing about her research process, the time she spent in The Hague. And on top of that, I really enjoyed her uh, reflection on language and the way that that's used in her novels, both as a sort of conduit and the responsibilities that interpreters and translators, etc., have. How about you? I really enjoyed talking to her because I think that Intimacies is an extremely stylish novel. Again, I think there's something about her use of language. It's it's quite spare. It's quite pared back, um, and it seems, you know, not not ornate, but has a kind of beauty to it. And to see her approach and her her way of doing that, I was also interested. I think, as we alluded to in the interview, in in the time that she'd spent in the Hague, because when I was a work as a journalist in Africa, I was I was kind of covering that stuff from from the other end. Um, and I also thought it was very interesting when she she talks about you know what's it like uh, being married to another novelist and and how that that relationship works and 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 that element. So um, she's also someone who's who's clearly really having having a moment at the moment. It was excellent, I think, to 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 get her on the show, and it would be great to see what what she does next and what heights she reaches, mm, and what happens with the muted adaptations of her work as well. Yeah, definitely. What have you been working on, Simon? Um, I have been doing magazine stuff, really. Um, I have been just doing lots of interviews and moving forward with various magazine projects and um, looking to do a hostile environment training course for a assignment uh, later this year, which should be interesting. And I've got a, a piece coming out in the London Review of Books, I think, in a few weeks. Um, what about you, Rachel? I have just filed a piece, uh, a profile of a stand-up comedian, and I'm working on my next uh, long piece, which will be about a seminal feminist text, which was published 50 years ago. Uh, so that's in its infancy. Which one? It's called The New Portuguese Letters. I'm sure you're very familiar with it, Simon. <laughs> to my shame, Rachel, I'm not. Could you <laughs> could you share with the a brief, a brief precy of what it's about? Uh, well, it was written by three Portuguese women called the Three Marias, and they were arrested for it. It was uh, quite provocative and erotic, uh, but it became a sort of international uh, rallying cry for feminists. So Maine de Beauvoir and Adrian Rich and various others uh, galvanised support for them. Uh, so it's about that. Sounds sounds well up your street, Rachel. So I look forward to... Uh, it is indeed, yeah. I look forward to, uh, to seeing that. Um, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. On Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us or leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.